Hello, everyone. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh here with... Dr. Scott. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Hey, it is episode 106. You are getting your documentary review a little bit early this month, and then we will drop a new psych episode next week. We're finally doing an episode on swatting. I know. <laughs> Been talking about it for years, I feel like. Yeah, we really have. And interesting, like the research that comes up, who knew that it had been around this long? So we'll no be kidding. able to get into it. Yeah. A little bit of housekeeping, not a lot here, other than that we are so looking forward to seeing whoever is coming to the True Crime Podcast Festival in a couple of weeks in Dallas. It's already sold out, but we are so excited to hang out with our peeps like we did at CrimeCon in Vegas. Even this is going to be more intimate because yep. it's a tighter venue. We love it. Right now, we're putting the final touches on our production in conjunction with the amazing doctors of women in crime on the Sherry Papini case. Mm. And for all the other upcoming events that we have, please go to our live events page on our website. Yes. Hey, so our last episode was the vintage episode in which we told you the story of compulsive liar and murderess Louise Pete, who was a one-woman wrecking machine in Los Angeles in the early early 1920s. She's a real piece of work. So please go check out episode 105, The Talented Mrs. Pete. She came in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> she <laughs> oh, was no, the sorry. wrecking ball. She was the wrecking ball. Absolutely. What are we watching, listening, reading to this month? You had a lot on your plate last month. I did. And I have completed some of that. And I'm focusing on some other things. It's much less right now. I have lined up another documentary that Ooh. is in consideration for one of our next episodes. Won't reveal it as we'll cover it when we come up, but it is on Netflix. Everybody's watching it and it's another disturbing one. But oh. isn't it amazing that we we have a go-to channel for actually well-done crime documentaries? And as far as what I'm reading, I'm actually not reading anything right now. I'm trying to complete a 20-hour continuing education course on personality disorders. And let me tell you, Whoa. usually with... CEUs, as we call them, I'm like half asleep during them. And I'm like, okay, I know this, I know this, I know this. This is one where it's actually taking me probably four times as long because the information is so good and so dense that I'm constantly hitting the rewind button. Like I'm wow. on the elliptical at the machine going, holy crap, I need to hear him say that again. Back it up, back it up, back it up. Really good. And in a couple of months, when we do a follow-up episode on personality disorders, we'll be bringing this right. information into an episode. What are you doing? I guess I have more time doing non-work stuff in the last month because I have been cranking it through some things. Actually, I know what it is. I had a training that was down by LAX airport that I drove to five days a week. So I had lots of audible listening time. I actually, in one week, listened to two and a half books. So I, well, reading, I have finished The Early Years Part 1, The Further Serial Crimes of George Hodel by Steve Hodel. So I finished that. I finished a book called called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. And it's all about the study of highly effective work groups like the Navy SEALs, the team at Pixar, just like really interesting stuff about what makes the science behind what makes a really good work group. I also read By the Hidden History, Culture, and Science of Bisexuality by Dr. Julia Shaw. So nice to see all that research put into one place because it's such a forgotten topic in the LGBTQ 
plus space. Very much so. Yeah, it was really, really informative. And then I'm about halfway through Trigger Points by Mark Follum that we mentioned in our School Shooters episode. And I'm going to be able to see him present at a conference I'm going to next week. So that as well as podcast-wise, I've been listening to Healing by David Kessler, the grief and bereavement expert. He has a podcast. It's wonderful. Yeah. He was a guest speaker at a training that I was putting on a couple of weeks ago. And so I go up to him I'm like, David, I love the podcast. How do you like the podcasting game? And he, he's so funny. He looks up at me. He's like, I hate it. <laughs> oh my poor thing. I know. He's just like, I am not a person that sits in a dark room by myself and talks. Like, that's not me. And I'm like, it's wonderful though. (laughs) You're giving such a gift back to people. Yeah. So that, and then everyone needs to check out Media Circus by Kim Goldman. It's really, really good. Each episode really hones in on a person impacted by true crime and the ridiculousness of the media. The first one is with a father from the Parkland shooting, and it's wonderful. She has an episode with Amanda Knox where, man, Amanda Knox is just like a master class on how to deal with publicity and shitty reporters and all of that. And continuing to have to deal with unbelievable crappiness from people online. I read some of the comments when she tweets. I know. And I think, what is wrong with you people? Like, really, what is wrong with you? Trolls. There you go. And then TV show-wise, I watched The Terminal List on Amazon Prime. Really good. It's about a Navy SEAL who comes back from a mission where essentially his whole team was wiped out, but it has to do with PTS. And then Uh kind of this, is there a delusional disorder going on? You don't really know. So it's it's all action, total action-packed, but also has these themes underlying. I will say I was like screaming at my television a couple times because there were some scenes where it was kind of like negotiating and it was terrible. I was like, they need me to consult on this. You would never say that. <laughs> well, that's like watching anything with my husband because oh, we will be God. watching something that's historical and he'll go, oh, that doorknob, that doorknob is from 40 years later. Look at that window pane. Those windows didn't even How exist. How does he like, even watch anything damn. without going nuts? Because he's literally <laughs> an art director. Like, come on. I know. Uh, There's a oh lot gosh. of eye rolling. But, yeah. Oh, I was going to tell you, one of the things I just did pick up which for my complete nerd self is Netflix dropped a wonderful, wonderful series that is based on a Neil Gaiman graphic novel called The Sandman. Oh. And it has been around for years. We are now at the time where something like this could actually be produced because it requires so many special effects. And it is, I mean, I don't know if you're not a fan of this sort of really intellectual fantasy. I I don't know if you'd enjoy it, but it is really challenging. You know what? I think you could probably just turn off the sound and turn on your favorite music and watch the visuals and you'd probably love it. It's that beautiful. It tells a story that way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I heard a lot of people have been looking at that, watching it. So, okay. So this week we are talking about episode one of the Netflix series, Web of Make-Believe, Death Lies in the Internet. And episode one is called Death by SWAT. Mm. This whole series was released earlier this year and has six total episodes with a variety of different internet-based crimes, inappropriate behavior, kind of like what the Wild West of (laughs) the internet is these days. Yeah. This has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 80%, so pretty decent. And the internet movie database description of the production says... 
Conspiracy, fraud, violence, murder. What starts out virtual can get real all too quickly. And when the web is worldwide, so are the consequences. This first episode is great. They have different directors. This one is directed by Brian Knappenberger. We'll talk more about our ratings at the end. I'm just going to say up front, did a pretty good job. Yeah. I'm pretty impressed. want to give everybody a big trigger warning on this one that there is murder, gun violence, police violence, if that is triggering for you. So please be aware. And also, there is a significant and disturbing amount of suicides related to this documentary that is absolutely heartrending. So please be careful going into listening to what we're saying today, as well as watching it, because it is disturbing. Yep. So episode one, Death by SWAT, highlights the havoc that swatting can take by focusing on one prolific perpetrator from Los Angeles. This story gives us so many thought-provoking issues to consider, like the impact of adverse childhood experiences on behavior, the influence of gaming culture, as well as kind of this living an almost all online life, to trolling behavior, widespread impacts of trauma, and issues of police use of force. So what the hell is swatting, Scott? I think we need to start off with a uh, definition here. Yeah, let's just use like the textbook definition. It's on one of the first Google searches that comes up for swatting. It is the action or practice of making a prank call to emergency services in an attempt to bring about the dispatch of a large number of armed police officers to a particular address. Callers sometimes use what's called spoofing technology to make it look as though the call is coming from inside the victim's home or at least nearby. So spoofing technology allows voice over internet protocol to the same area code and the same designator code for a call, making it very, very difficult for law enforcement to track down the source of the call. So an expert interviewed in the documentary says that this phenomenon goes back about 20 years, starting with the gaming community and in an FBI publication that we found, it warned against swatting as far back as 2008. So it seems to get more widespread law enforcement attention around that time, although they cite incidents happening as far back as 2002. So yeah, about 20 years now. Swatting is problematic on a number of levels. The average cost is $10,000 in resources utilized for that kind of response. And that can vary from area to area. If you're in a large urban area, maybe a large police force can absorb it a little bit better. But if you're a rural police force, that is going to be an enormous drain on your yearly budget. Oh, yeah. And I would say, you know, in a high populated area, metropolitan area, you have a bigger footprint too, because to go and set up the SWAT trucks and have everything locked down, I mean, you're shutting down neighborhoods and businesses and it can get pricey when you start looking just outside what it costs to get 40 cops there or whatever. Very good point. So, but clear a complete waste of resources. I mean, it is just absolutely wasting resources and taking away law enforcement from other issues that may be occurring. Also, something that we don't touch on in this episode is that sometimes swatting is used as a diversionary technique if someone is trying to create or get away with crime in another area of town. That has not been so well researched as what we're talking about today, but it is a phenomenon that has happened in the past. So we have two main ways in which this phenomenon is out in the world in action. Action. First, online gamers. Online gamers will swat each other after getting pissed over a video game. And then because they're live streaming with one another, the perpetrator literally watches live as the police respond and enter the room of the victim with guns drawn. Very, very dangerous 
situation. The documentary shows multiple examples of this. I found them to be incredibly terrifying. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just you're watching a guy playing gaming. All of a sudden, the cops bust into his room and he's like, what the hell? Yeah. And the the cops are like, what the hell? Right. But they are approaching it like someone is being hurt. Someone is being kidnapped. Right. You know, they're they're using, for the most part, they're using what they feel to be the appropriate protocol. But that does come up in this documentary, unfortunately, with very consequential results. Also, we have the prank of swatting. God, I even hate using the word prank yeah. because that's what it is. Yeah. But it's like the most deadly potential for prank that I think exists. But pranking swatting celebrities where some unknown person calls in the incident to a celebrity's home because it'll make really big news. An example of this is in 2012, a 12-year-old boy was responsible for swatting Ashton Kutcher, Justin Bieber, and a bank. And for the Ashton call, the comments of the call advised that there were individuals inside the location with guns and explosives and that several people had been shot. So a 12-year-old boy Mm -hmm. came up with this. Yeah, did it multiple times. My goodness. So let me take a moment to just expand on when SWAT responds to a call because I, I think I went on a little mini Shiloh rant during our trolling episode on this, but I wanted to give more detail and information. And I did end up talking to a SWAT commander that works at a, a pretty big law enforcement agency in the United States to talk about this stuff, just to make sure I had it right. But essentially, SWAT responds to just a few types of incidents, meaning they do high high-risk search warrants, and those are all pre-planned. So if they know that they're doing a search warrant for someone who is going to be arrested that has access to a lot of weapons or has a particularly dangerous history, definitely the SWAT team is going to roll out, surround the house, call them out, try to resolve it that way. And then there's your spontaneous incidents, the ones they're not planned for. So especially in bigger metropolitan areas, the SWAT team, that's just their assignment, and they're kind of on standby training and, and doing doing what they need to do on the downtime, but also they're there at the ready to respond to these spontaneous incidents. So those include barricaded subjects with weapons or suicidal subjects with a weapon, or maybe they don't have a weapon, but they're on an elevated platform. And in these two situations, the patrol officers who are first to respond really aren't making any headway. So they are there to help with the special weapons and tactics, which is what SWAT stands for. And some of those tactics are things like negotiating teams and, of course, the technology that helps resolve these issues that just your average patrol officers don't have. So, you know, I I think we've talked before, could someone actually pretend to be a girl, a victim hiding in a closet and calls it in and then the SWAT team just shows up like that? Not really. So what happens is really patrol is going to get there first. They can get there the fastest. They're already deployed out in the city. They're already driving around waiting for radio calls. Whereas the SWAT team has to like get all their equipment ready. They have to get the call. They have to go get all the trucks. They have to assess the situation to even see if it meets their criteria because they have a certain criteria before they will roll out. And then if it meets that criteria, they will then go out there. But oftentimes as somebody who is part of a negotiation team and responds with SWAT, you Usually patrol has been out there trying to resolve the situation 
for at least a couple of hours. So it's not like this swatting call comes in and the SWAT team is first to respond and arrives. Yes, you're going to have your armed officers because they're all armed, but you're not going to have an entire team. So it does take hours by the time SWAT gets there. If there's a known hostage situation, I've seen it go a couple of ways. One is that it's spontaneous. You get the information right away that here's this barricaded subject that has taken a hostage. So that kind of falls in along the line of what I've already talked about. The other is I've had one call early in my career where they knew that there was a kidnapping and they had located where the kidnappers were holding the individual. And so they were going very slow and methodically to plan to go and get these suspects anticipating that it would turn into a hostage situation. So that was kind of a slow down, let's meet, let's brief. We know where these people are holed up at and then we can sort of execute this, uh, essentially what would be like an arrest warrant or a rescue mission at that point. So just a couple of ways for people to think about it. You know, if it's really dynamic, if it's really serious, I like to think of like the North Hollywood shootout. Like it wasn't a swatting situation, but it was unfolding in real time. Clearly it was obvious that SWAT was needed and they just responded from where they were at right away without probably without even being called to be honest the whole city just responded and then engaged with the suspects immediately but that was very dynamic and unusual if there is active loss of life happening like not barricaded officers are going in to rescue so again this kind of harkens back to active shooter type situation officers no matter who they are should be going into rescue eliminating the threat and rendering aid to anybody who's who's injured there but when i spoke to this swat team leader he said that he has screened a few swatting calls but the SWAT team, and this isn't a huge city, the SWAT team has never actually responded to a swatting call. So patrol or asking a few more questions are really good at figuring this out now that like what's going and he's like, we don't even roll to them. Like it's basically figured out by the time they're calling us because they've been out there for hours. Detectives are doing some investigative work behind the scenes and that they have literally never showed up to one. So it's when you hear about this in big cities or, you know, Hollywood with celebrities or things like that, it's your patrol officer showing up. That's very interesting. And I I wonder if it has to do with the documentary that we're talking about, or maybe not just this documentary, but the incidents that have resulted in loss of life yeah. from an over response. I mean, it sounds like having experienced patrol out there to get a bead on the situation is absolutely the right thing before you jump in with all these things. Although we are talking about someone who perpetrated bomb threats as well, which is a, a big deal. So in the documentary, we are introduced to our main perpetrator. This is a real person. This is a documentary. His name is Tyler Barris. He's a young man who did not graduate from high school and really lived the majority of his life primarily online. His father was deceased. His mother had moved away, leaving him to be raised by his grandmother. And from a young age, he was living his life online, streaming constantly. His friends were met primarily online, and he was isolating himself fully in the world of Halo, playing hours a day. As we learn about him through his ex-girlfriend and some swatting experts, the documentary overlays reenactments and voice recordings of Tyler Stiffing in 911 calls and interview content. Yeah, it it's didn't you think that he was probably dead the way they kind of started it? Like I was thinking, oh, they're playing his voice, like recordings. 
it was leading me to believe this guy wasn't alive anymore. Oh, no, I've been following this for years. Got it. Like, Got for it. one thing, I knew that was a prison phone call because it says, you know, your call has been da 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 at the beginning. Oh, I don't remember you that. You were receiving a phone call from da 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 da. So, oh, okay. I was just so hearing the 911 yeah. calls. Yeah. But I had, yeah, I had been following this because I remember when it happened and the results. I didn't know who he was and I wasn't following that, but the idea of swatting and also because part of my day job, I get referred. Oh, totally. Um, people who do this kind of practice on a regular basis because of their mental illness many times. It's driven, Not, I'm not we're not going to say whether or not this case is driven on it, but we'll talk about some aspects of, about that. Well, speaking of your day job, who's the actor playing Tyler, Dr. Scott? Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. So Tyler, I mean, again, good production. We're going to talk about it more, but Tyler is played throughout the reenactments in the documentary by a very good friend of mine, Malik Rabani. And he's an actor here in Los Angeles. His career is really taking off. And I'm just so happy to see him play this role and inhabit this character in such a disturbing mm -hmm. way. Because Malik is the nicest most enthusiastic, up, happy guy you've ever seen. And he is really showing his acting chops because there are shots that are really quite yeah. chilling throughout the doc. I want to give him a shout out for the work that he does uh, in a de-escalation training program for law enforcement where he plays a very difficult character that police have to use their skills on to de-escalate him and get him to come down off the edge of a building. He's one of six actors that volunteer their time to engage in this program. And it is incredibly valuable the law enforcement I work with at the end of the week walk away just raving about what a valuable experience it yes. is. And Malik is a big part of that, as well as the other five actors who are all wildly talented. So from the beginning of this documentary, the main character, Tyler, discloses how he got started in swatting. So he had a friend that did it first, and then Tyler wanted to one-up his friend, and he decided that he would go big, and he evacuated a college with a bomb threat, and it was on the news. So he said that he wanted to make headlines, and he definitely made headlines. And after that first one, he knew that with this spoofing technology, he could do it anywhere in the U.S. So he starts doing this to high schools and junior high and then swats people in the Halo community. He reported that he felt unstoppable. Others would praise him for being so cool and being able to pull it off. But this is really a representation of one of the darker aspects of his online world. And his girlfriend eventually just decides she's got to get out into the real world. She realizes, like, I'm spending way too much time online. And he is left to this life online. And he starts getting what he, I guess what he thinks are all of his needs are being met through right. online gaming and these acts of swatting. But clearly his lack of interaction in real life contribute to his really horrible behavior. Yeah, I think this is a good place to pause and kind of go to our psycho babble corner to just talk about like what's going on for him right now. When the girlfriend is talking about that it's almost as if all of his other friends kind of were like, okay, let's like grow up and we have to like move on to adulthood and live our lives. But he doesn't. And he's so invested in this swatting. And you see flavors of trolling to like the nth degree right? with the actions and what's happening and, and really stepping offline with some terrible behavior into the real world and bringing in the police and, and impacting victims. It's a lot. Right. So as a review, our research for our episode on the psychopathology of internet trolls, we discussed the paradigm of a dark tetrad that exists for these individuals. And that is a combination of narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, 
and sadism. Yeah. So all of these qualities really kind of come out throughout the documentary. You're really seeing this presented and you're also seeing it being egged on by mm-hmm. other members of the community. And there's almost like a glorification of the really demeaning terms that they yell at each other while they're playing. Supposedly as friends, they're still right. going after each other in a really violent way. Yeah, I even back in 2008, some of the FBI publications that I found, they had gone and interviewed perpetrators and they were finding that individuals were basically doing it for bragging rights. Because, you know, they're trying to get to the bottom of this kind of like, what is the motivation here? We're not understanding it. Is this a generational thing? But really, it came down to bragging rights and ego versus really any sort of monetary gain that we see with so many crimes. And this sense of, well, I do it because I can. I want to build on that. So I agree They're doing it because they can. They're also doing it because their lives are so siloed into one particular facet without the impediment and challenge and elevation of interpersonal relationships in real life. So they may say that they are doing it for ego, but they're also doing it because their ego is not being fed in any other way, the way the rest of us deal with it. So you're, you're really emotionally stunting yourself by saying this. And look, I'm not dinging on video games. There are plenty of people that play violent video games that are completely fine, but there are people that fall into this life. They have another set of, and if they have another set of characteristics that can be aggravated by this, then the potential there is very dangerous. So from the book, Video Games, Crime, and Next Gen Deviance, I want to give you a quote. Now it is important to note that when swatting is used as a prank, it is a performative act which is specifically designed to be visually consumed by others who are already watching the victim via platforms such as twitch.tv. So therefore, it's separating it from other types of prank calls where you don't see it unfold online or on the news. It's almost this like voyeurism. Yes. That comes into play, right? So they also go on to state that in order for the refocusing to be successful... The act of swatting needs to be dramatic, almost cinematic, which captivates the online audience. The perpetrators of swatting are aware of these capabilities and the cinematic effect they can have. And thus, they only call in crimes which are likely to see a SWAT team respond. Wow. Yeah, so definitely. I think you nailed it. There's an added element of voyeurism that's also feeding the other pathologies here. So I guess we can say... Voyeurism and sadism to combined, which is we haven't really had the opportunity to talk about that in many other episodes. True. But this is really a specific example of that. Yeah. So now we came up with a fifth voyeurism. We were going to try and keep it at four. Deadly Ooh. Tetrad. <laughs> let's add that to our list of papers we should write at some point. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll get right, <laughs> right. on that. So let's get back to Tyler. Around this time, his grandmother really starts to become afraid of him due to his temperament. He's rageful. He has mood swings. In 2015, she's watching the news and he comes in in the room and says, hey, I could evacuate that news station with a bomb threat. They were watching a local channel here, KABC. It's uh, Channel 7 here in LA. And grandmother confronts him as she's watching it unfold and he threatens her. He turns to his grandmother, the woman that has been taking care of him since he was like an infant, and he threatens her with harm if she tells anyone, like really threatens her with great bodily harm. So she did a really smart thing. She has a friend who was a retired police officer, and that sets into motion 
Tyler being finally arrested for the first time. So LA police agencies start talking about similar cases that they've experienced, particularly schools being evacuated, and they play the tapes for his grandmother, and she is absolutely able to identify his voice on each of the calls. And eventually, they link him to calls throughout the country, including the evacuation of airports. So he ends up spending 16 months in jail, and his grandma gets a restraining order. He gets out of jail. He goes right back home and violates the court order. So this is a guy who didn't graduate from high school. He has no life skills, no job experience. And he straight up says, I didn't even know how to be homeless when I got out of jail. Yeah. In his interviews, I mean, he's being interviewed viewed from prison. Mm -hmm. And he's very open about it. I don't know how to be homeless. I don't know how to do anything in regards to activities of daily living and taking care of himself. But I was particularly struck by how flat his affect is. Like his vocal affect is very monotone, very matter of fact and dispassionate. He even says something that's quite chilling. He talks constantly about just casually. He says that he like, yeah, I wasn't afraid of going to jail. I mean, yeah, it's just is what it is. I got to deal with it. And the idea that someone in his late teens, early 20s has done something so egregious and gotten in trouble with it and you're being taken to L.A. County Jail and you are not afraid of it. And I don't think that he was showing bravado yeah. saying he wasn't afraid of it. I think he actually wasn't, which is another factor in here, right? Well, there's some disconnect. We can see right. that, right? Like there's disconnect between any remorse for what he's doing and then lack of fear. <laughs> uh, you're right. LA County Jail is terrifying. So yeah. for a young kid like that, I, I didn't think it was posturing either. So he violates his restraining order. He goes back to jail for several months. And when he gets out, he's staying at a homeless shelter and starts hanging out basically at the public library all day. There's air conditioning, there's shelter, and there's internet. So he goes right back to swatting. Now also for pay, people are now hiring him like for 20 to 50 bucks Per SWAT that he can pull off, per SWATing incident he can pull off. And he's enjoying doing it. He then has like a shit ton of Twitter accounts, but basically all these Twitter accounts, he is bragging about his escapades and SWATing and does about 37 cases of SWATing during this time. Wow. From a public library on a smartphone using VOIP so he can continue to spoof the numbers. And he's good at just somewhat disguising his voice. Although the more you listen to the different examples, it's clear it's the same person, which is what the police were able to do. Yeah. That one expert investigator was like, I just, I knew it was him. I could, I could spot it or hear it in in a second. But yeah, he's described as a one-man wrecking crew, basically. And in 2017, as the FCC is holding meetings on net neutrality, Tyler decides to call in a threat to that federal building where the meetings are being held. And this is a pretty big deal because one, net neutrality was kind of a big issue that we were looking at where is this going. Also, Tyler has like this big presence on Twitter with thousands of followers that are just chomping at the bit to see what he does next. But he claims he wasn't trying to disrupt the voting. Like, he didn't really care about that. He just wanted attention to his Twitter accounts that day. I mean, how twisted is that? I completely agree. I mean, net neutrality was a very big deal at the time. And what the, the government was trying to do was make the playing field for smaller businesses even more difficult. And they were poo-pooing the need for low-income businesses and mom and pops to be able to access high-speed internet. Anyway, it was a huge deal. But he didn't care about that. He had no care about that. So what the documentary is leading up to at this point 
is the real fear from law enforcement of the risk of someone dying due to a swatting incident. And unfortunately, their worst fears come true. So here we have a situation where two gamers are playing together. And for $1.50, one of them accidentally kills the other's character and they lose. So these two are teammates and they're supposed to be fighting a common enemy. Yeah. And one of them either gets paid or he accidentally kills his partner's character right. and they lose the game. So I think the $1.50 amount comes in for who, what team was going to win the game. So but these two guys that were working together now get into a huge online feud about this. The one whose virtual character got killed contacts Tyler to swat his gamer friend. And the friend then sends the address and taunts him that he can't pull it off. So the potential victim goes, yeah, try it. Yeah. Like you're like, you're actually going to do this. Ha ha ha. Here's my address. So Tyler calls the police saying that he just shot his father in the head and was holding his entire family hostage at gunpoint, adding, I've already poured gasoline all over the house. I might just set it on fire. Yeah. The, unbelievable. The, it is unbelievable. You think of like, okay, they're playing for $1.50. That's just, okay, whatever. And then they're going to get so upset at each other with this world of online gaming. And then they're going to start trying to bring Tyler into like, shit talk to him and see if he can actually do it all for like this other like Twitter online presence. It's just, I mean, we could do an entire episode just on life online, especially for oh, younger yeah. people and generations. But again, like I want to kind of break here for Psychobabble Corner because we've talked about parasocial relationships in a lot of different ways on our show before. And I think that happens in gaming as well. And going back to the book, Video Games, crime, and next-generation deviance, they say this, as with any community, these twitch.tv groups often become quite tight-knit with their own language, expected behaviors, and shared jokes. It is this shared socialization that creates the space in which virtual and analog realities begin to overlap, and new forms of deviance can be seen to emerge with one such form of deviance being the act of swatting. So it's taking this very unique set of circumstances, this unique way in which people socialize and talking about the garbage that comes out of that. Well, it's that's terrifying yeah. because that's going to continue. That's not just specific to swatting and trolling. It talks right. about the potential for it to, to leak into all sorts of our world as we increasingly become more enmeshed with an online virtual aspect of life. Right. So harassment, the tone of gaming, it's similar in some cases to what we've talked about uh, or described within some aspects of the online incel community. It's lots of shit talking, a lot of really cruel and violent conversations. And from what I understand, it's especially brutal for female gamers out there. The misogyny and chronic harassment is just awful. There was mm -hmm. a huge event several years ago uh, called Gamergate that is still controversial to this day where that we really saw the ugly, ugly side of the gaming community. Yeah, yeah. So back to the story, the kid in this scenario who gave Tyler his address actually gives the wrong address. He gives an old address where he and his family used to live in Wichita, Kansas. And a man by the name of Andrew Finch is there having dinner with his mother and a friend of his and his niece is also in the home. And they're just going about their evening and all of a sudden the police surround the house. Andrew opens the front door and within seconds of opening this front door is shot by an officer with an AR-15. The police then go up to the home they evacuate, call out and evacuate the rest of the family. As they're doing this, you know, it takes a long time to clear a home to make sure there aren't any suspects there. 
Andrew is laying right there in the doorway, not receiving any medical attention, and eventually ends up slowly, slowly dying of this gunshot wound. The police take everyone back to the police station. They question them and really are confused at the beginning because they think this is a legit you know, incident that has been called in, but maybe not as quickly as they should have figure out that this was an incident of swatting. And you know, here you have Andrew... One, dying of his injuries, but his family members having to watch that. Literally, his niece who was upstairs listening to music, not knowing any of this is going on. They make her like step over his dying body as they take her out the front door. It's really, really horrific. Particularly for her, as Andrew was her father, basically. Yeah. He had raised her since child. She He played a big part in her life. You know, he had a great reputation with all of his relatives. And it really is, they... they talk about in the documentary how long his he sat he laid there bleeding out when he could have received medical attention so this whole incident spreads like wildfire one of the reasons it spreads like wildfire is tyler and the other gamers are pretty proud that they've stirred shit up at this point they don't know that someone has been murdered but as the news starts going out it just picks up yeah. fire the internet is livid with Tyler. He gets interviewed by a YouTuber. I mean, this blows your mind because he's so lacking in insight and compassion and empathy. And he goes on and has this interviewer and the interviewer is another gamer or a, a YouTuber who is holding, doing a great interview. He is like holding him to the fire yeah. and he's glib. He's completely glib about the whole thing. But again, with this monotone delivery and this bizarre justification for his actions, and all the while he's downplaying his role mm -hmm. in it. And you know, you've heard us here use the term mental gymnastics before, and this is an example of it being on full display. And he also doesn't know that the LAPD are literally watching and listening to the streaming interview, and they're able to link him to the crime. Wow. They track the IP address, and I guess they arrest Tyler at the public library. They're able to track him. He's back at the library on his phone giving this crazy interview with the YouTuber. So they go into the impact, the documentary, I should say, goes into the impact on Andrew's family and community. And here's where I want to give the other trigger warning again. His younger brother admits to con contemplating suicide. His young niece, who was 17 at the time of death and who had to walk over his body, she died by suicide a year later. Her mm -hmm. boyfriend, who discovered her body, then killed himself as well. Horrific. Just absolutely horrific. I will say that the, the the community really came together in activism and support, and they brought forth awareness, and they called for accountability for the officer who shot Andrew. But despite great community action and publicity, no charges were filed against the officer. The documentary talks about how Kansas has laws that do not disclose, but another onliner did some research mm -hmm. and disclosed the name of the officer who had a history right. of use of force and even was known to have been filmed on, I believe, several episodes of Cops. Yes. So back to Tyler, he's now facing involuntary manslaughter charges in Kansas and other swatting related charges in a whole host of other states. And he was able to roll, I mean, when I say he, I mean his defense, yeah. was able to roll all of these together 
to a federal offense that he then pled guilty to receiving a 20-year jail sentence. Uh, The other two, one is pending and the other one got several months in jail. He got off really lightly. I have to say that like on a number of levels, he got off lightly. He got a deal with putting it all together instead of separate charges running one after the other. Right. And he got to go to club fed because federal prisons are a lot easier than going to a state prison. Well, he's not scared anyway, right? <laughs> I I guess not. I guess but you're not. right. I mean, you think 20 years, but this is not just for taking Andrew's life and, you know, taking him away from his family, which clearly was deeply, deeply impacted in just such tragic ways, but also all of the other chaos that he brought, you know, throughout the country. So it's a very sad and tragic ending. And st- Still not taking full accountability for what he did. It's like, I didn't pull the trigger, Yeah, which he does have a point. He did not pull the trigger, but, you know, you were the match to the gasoline that was poured. For sure. For sure. I wanted to read a quote that was mentioned by Andrew's friend who was over for dinner that night, just because I thought... It hits home. But he says, quote, technology benefits people with brains, intelligent people. But when technology is used by idiots, it creates chaos and it creates disasters. Yeah, I like that. It's very apt, but I would probably, in this case, I don't think he's an idiot. He has cognitive deficits in some areas and maybe some processing issues. But underlying is just whether it is by genetics or trauma that he experienced as a child. I don't know. We don't have any details on that. Yeah. But he absolutely has either no empathy or an inability to process empathy or an absolute caring mm-hmm. that other people were hurt. So all of those would be problematic. And and the frustration here that the community has with law enforcement is that these cases are often very difficult to prosecute because many of the perpetrators are juveniles. Yeah. And they, in the commission of the act, thought of it as a prank or a joke. So that makes it really difficult to prove intent to cause harm. So that is the legal phrase. You have to prove intent to cause harm. Right. And if you have a bunch of kids doing this and you're talking about intent, we have all the other questions that we have when we talk about juvies committing crimes. You know, what did they really think was going to happen? Do they really think through all the consequences and... A lot of times the answer is no, and that's where you get put in the really tough position. Well, then what should they be held accountable for? Yeah, it is it is very frustrating because it's one of those where there's so many overlapping, like little phases of responsibility with different people, especially in the death of Andrew, where you did literally have somebody pull a trigger that absolutely, <laughs> from what we were presenting in the documentary, I don't have any other information, but looks like a really quick use of force, which yeah. just... Come on. And then you have all the other players that, you know, led up to them being there. So very, very difficult circumstances. Tragic all the way around. But let's move to our final thoughts on this as we wrap it up. I'm really grateful that there is something this well produced that focuses on this really dangerous phenomenon because it actually happens more than the public knows. And it's important for people to know about it and to educate their kids and to socialize their kids. Again, not blaming gaming totally, um, but certainly the online versus analog life contributed to the development of this character. So one of the things that really punched me is just about the amount of loss and how devastating it is. I mean, while we can focus on 
how many people are part and party to what happened. It hurts to think that this family had no support system that could help prevent the suicides. And when Mm -hmm. I say that, I, I know that they had friends, they had family, they had community, they had each other that were offering support that were devastated as well, but it wasn't enough. And that's no judgment on anyone who was part of that support system. I don't mean that at all. It's just an absolute tragedy all the way around. Now, getting into this, the nuts and bolts of it, I think it was a really tight watch. It was well-constructed. It does a really great job of creating an environment where the perpetrators just talk and incriminate themselves. Mm -hmm. Like they are absolutely telling on themselves. And I believe that the viewer can come away really knowing who they are. Your creep radar is just going off the charts as you're listening to them talk. Even some of the ones, there's examples of peripheral people that they sort of take responsibility for kind of being involved. But like, I don't know, I wouldn't say they necessarily dismiss it, but I don't get the impression that they really get it. I think that's important for people to watch. Production values are great. It's also a union contract show for SAG-AFTRA, which is really great because the people that, the cameraman, the lights, the actors, everybody involved, producers, writers, everybody should be paid and getting the benefits of being in a union. So yay, I'm happy about that. And how do you know that? I wouldn't know that as just a normal viewer. Because I love watching the credits. It's one of the things that that Dan and I do. We we go through the credits and one of the last closing cards was the SAG-AFTRA logo. Got it. Well, I think the entire internet series, this web of make-believe is a great reminder of just what shitty people are out there in the world. (laughs) It's a brutal reminder, isn't it? Yeah. It is. My husband, who's not a true crime guy, actually watched a few episodes and he's like, this just pissed me off that there's just horrible people out there like this doing these things. But when you unfold the layers, I think it's interesting for you and I to peel back what are some of the psych phenomenon and issues going on underneath. Overall, I just thought it was a really good watch. It was really visually interesting. Again, I'm so glad that they gave time to the victim's family to really make an impact on how they were affected and bring an element to the episode that wasn't just all focused on the perpetrator. Yeah. You know, when when you hear Andrew's mom talk and she's sitting there and she is fired up as hell and she's like they're just like they're never going to get rid of me i'm always going to be pushing for this because these were just normal people having a quiet dinner at home you know just i just love that despite all the tragedy that has been around her the suicides after Andrew's death and her other son being really impacted by this. I just loved hearing from the two of them because it was so raw. It was really hard, but I think it's one of those things that we have the responsibility to listen to them talk, to hear the pain. Yeah. I think it was also smart to touch on some of the issues of the police violence and how that impacted the community at large, but it was, it was a good quick hit documentary episode. I liked it a lot. So I'm going to give it four brains. I'm going to give it four brains as well. I I, I highly encourage people to watch it. And if you are a listener in a non-metropolitan area, you know, just going to put it out there. Advocacy for police training is a good thing. Yes. De-escalation training is a good thing. Everybody benefits from it. Life benefits from it. Economy benefits from it. Understanding how one person not having appropriate training Hmm. and the awful impact that that can have 
on a family, on a community. We should all be aware of it, right? Let's all do our part. Yeah. I would say maybe not having the proper training, but it could also just be him. A bad apple sort of situation. That's a good point. Because I think they noted that he might have even been a member of the SWAT team, even though it wasn't the SWAT team that showed up. Some smaller agencies, it's ancillary. So it's as it's in addition to your uh, regular patrol duties. So I'm guessing he was well-trained, but the term trigger happy floats into my head when I think Yeah, of this it case. really does. And apparently there were other shootings and use of force issues that came out yeah. in his record as well. So Yeah. All right. We matched with the amount of brains we gave it this week or this month. Yeah. So that was a good one. Thanks for... Uh, that was great. Yeah. Sticking with us through another documentary. Yeah, thank you, folks. And keep those suggestions coming. These are very exciting. When we can, we like watching the multiple episode documentaries, but for the purposes of this, of getting down and dirty and giving you enough psychobabble to get another perspective on what's going on, the one-off episodes are really great. So if you have ones that you like, even going back to stuff that's like pre-internet, maybe it's on YouTube or something, please let us know. Send us an email and we will try and cover it. Yes, we will. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Take care. Bye, folks. Bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Confidential.